Well, again, thanks for joining us this morning, either in person or online. Glad to worship with you. Uh, I'm sure many of you are like this, and some of you might be like my wife. Um, but when I, whenever I go somewhere, vacation, travel, I have to do all the stuff, right? Because I either paid for it or I spent the time to go there, and I'm never usually there. And so, like, I remember in high school, about, like, eight of us took this trip to go camping in the mountains in Virginia, and it was the coldest I have ever been in my entire life. I mean, it was, like, this cold for three days straight, and uh, it was awful. And so we get there Friday around lunchtime, and we've got these, like, packs on our back. I don't know what it's called because I've never done this since then. <laughs> and, uh, and so we, we hike, like, two or three miles up the mountains, and we find this place. And so we're running around, and we're exhausted. Nobody sleeps. We get up early in the morning, and we're walking around these mountains. They had these mini horses. I don't know if they're, like, technically mini horses, but they were miniature horses. I don't know what they were. And they were awesome. They were all over the place. And one of our friends got kicked in the shoulder by one, and I may or may not have told my friend to come look at the ground and then shoved his face in some horse poop. Not that I would do that, but that might have happened. But anyway, Saturday afternoon comes around three or four, and everyone's just exhausted. So everyone goes in the tent to take a nap, and I'm like, I can't do that. Like, I am so tired, but I'm here. So I spent 90 minutes with, fruit, uh, with carrots and grapes uh, enticing one of the mini horses to our campsite. I got it, and then I was like, hey, guys, look, look, look. And so they, like, opened their tent, and as soon as one of them came out of the tent, it ran away. But I couldn't, I, could, I was like, I'm here. Or last year, Christina and I, we, we celebrated 10 years of marriage, so we went to Disney and without the kids. And one of her very sto favorite stories is, like, it's like day three or day four, right? And we're riding everything, and our feet hurt, but we have to be there. And so we're going from one side of the park to go ride this other ride. And I'm like, let's I'm tired. Let's take a break. And she's like, yes, please. So we sit on this bench, right? And then uh, three minutes later, I'm like, all right, let's go. And she's like, that's not a break. I'm like, well, we're here, right? So I just, I have to go. And of course, it's not necessarily wrong. It's not necessarily bad. But when I'm these places, like, I want to get everything I can out of it. And today, as we continue our study through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see that when Jesus was here, he also seemed to want to get everything out of it, though his motivation was a little bit different than mine. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 6. If you're watching online, we'll be in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 45. We are going to be reading another one of the most well-known miracles of Jesus. Uh, if you're new with us and you haven't been al along with us, uh, Mark is one of the four Gospels in the New Testament, which is the stories of Jesus. Uh, last week, we saw the, the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, we saw that there was actually a little bit more going on there than you might expect on a surface level reading. Uh, today, we're going to see the miracle of Jesus walking on water. And we're also going to see that there's more to the story than you might expect on a surface level reading. And so uh, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, here's what it says next, starting in chapter 6, verse 45. It says, immediately he, he being Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. So they're next to the Sea of Galilee. Again, Mark often does not give us very many details. The question is, why does Mark dismiss the crowd and kind of want people to leave immediately? It doesn't tell us. If you were here last week, we saw how in John chapter 6, the crowd essentially wanted to take Jesus by force and crown him king. They wanted Jesus to kind of be the new ruler of, of Israel to kind of, in this part of, uh, of the Israel, to overthrow the Roman government by violent force. He picks up on this. Of course, he is the Messiah, but he's not going to do it in the way that they want. And so he leaves. Now, in the Greek here, it indicates that Jesus is pretty forceful in wanting his disciples to leave. You can imagine that they're like, we're not going to just leave you here. This has been a long day. But eventually, somehow, it gets them to leave. He tells the crowd he's, he's, he's leaving, and he goes away to pray to spend time with the Father. And then here's what happens next, verse 47. 
Well into the night, the boat was in the middle of the sea, so the boat that the disciples were on. And he, Jesus, was alone on the land. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them, walking on the sea, and wanted to pass them or pass by them. And so, again, this is the second time we have seen the disciples struggling on the sea. The, the calming of the storm and the waves in Mark chapter 4 might come to mind. And so Jesus here sees, somehow sees, somehow knows, not exactly sure, maybe he saw them, or somehow he knows that they are struggling. And so very early in the morning, he goes out to them. It's literally translation, uh, translated, some of your translations might say, in the fourth watch of the night. And so this is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Jesus goes to his disciples who are struggling. Now, the question is, why does he do it? Well, the text says to pass by them or to pass them by, which sounds really weird, right? Like, why would Jesus see that they're struggling and just, like, want to walk beside them? Like, doesn't he want to help them? Does he want them to know what's going on? This is, this is pretty interesting. Now, I, one thing to point out here I think is helpful to know is that anytime in Scripture that you are confused about something, uh, maybe, uh, particularly, maybe there's a, gr a grammatical thing that doesn't make sense, like pass them by, like that is, that's a weird thing, what's actually happening there. Or even if you're confused about other things, uh, the reality is very often our questions when we read a text, particularly in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament, is actually answered by Scripture. So we're going to see this in a second. What does Jesus mean by passing them by? But I think it's just worth noting, anytime you're confused about something, if there's imagery or weird grammar, it's often answered in Scripture. So just for example, uh, Revelation is a very confusing book. You've got dragons and this woman and these, all these things going on. And so what can happen if you're not aware that the, the scriptural authors, particularly the New Testament authors, are steeped in the Hebrew Scripture, that they're often using uh, imaginative categories to explain what's going on. And so if you're not aware of that, what happens is you get these really weird interpretations of what's happening. So people will say like the gnats are Apache helicopters or the mark of the beast is a vaccine. And so it's just helpful to know two things when you're reading something in Scripture that's confusing. Number one, that Scripture cannot mean for us what it did not mean for them. Scripture cannot mean for 21st century Americans something that would not have made sense from the New Testament to the first century people reading that. So that's the first thing. If it's something that would have made no sense to them, it, would not, it wouldn't be what it is. And the second thing is, again, to look at Scripture. Now, Revelation is confusing in and of itself. But for example, it talks a lot about the dragon or the snake. The question is, does Scripture talk about the dragon and snakes a lot in the Old Testament? The answer is yes. So the question is, what is John actually doing there? If you study the Hebrew Bible, you can start to make some sense. Not that it's easy, but the answer are, is there. And so what I want to do is take a second to look at this for us. Right, so if you're confused, again, remember what's going on here. Jesus, if you're here last week, uh, saw compassion. He had been traveling, his disciples had been traveling, they were trying to get away to be by themselves, yet there's a crowd going, a crowd forming, so he goes to them, and in his compassion, he feeds and helps and teaches the crowd. And now the same thing has happened to the disciples. He sees them, he has compassion on them, and so he wants to go meet them in the water. So the question is, again, if you've been with us throughout Mark, you know that Jesus' miracles are always intentional. They are never random, often specifically tying to things that happen in the Hebrew Bible. So the question for us is, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, who is the only other person that walks on water? Who is the only other person that passes people by? Let me give you a quick kind of summary of this. In Job chapter 9, verse 8, it'll be on the screen, it says this, He alone, talking about God here, stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. 
Or Psalm 77 says this, your way went through the sea and your path through the vast water, but your footprints were unseen. Or last one, Isaiah 43, it says, this is what the Lord says, who makes a way in the sea and a path through the raging water. So what we see here is that Mark is trying to draw something to us, that Jesus, what he's doing here is not random. In fact, what he's doing here is significant, right? By walking on water, Jesus walks where only God can walk, right? In the Hebrew Bible, it is presented, of course, no human being can walk on water or tread on water. That makes no sense. But by doing this, Mark is wanting us to bring to mind passages that says that Jesus is clearly doing something significant here. He is, he is at a place that no one else can be or is supposed to be by walking on water. Now, I'm sure this is not true for you, but I don't know if, by chance, you have ever trespassed somewhere. Right? Have you ever been somewhere where you're not supposed to be? The only, of course, the very only time I can think... So, so for most people, like, you might do this innocently, right? Like, you might, like, walk through a house that's being constructed or some abandoned, you know, warehouse just to see it. And then every once in a while, for me, this only happened one time, you do it, you know, intentionally. And you might, like, try to take things that aren't yours. So for me, <laughs> when I was in high school, like, freshman, sophomore year, one of my friends, uh, not in our neighborhood, but in a different neighborhood, they got this... They built this house with their parents. It was, like, 12 by 12 or 16 by 16. It was just, like, this room in their backyard. And they had four TVs in each corner with four Xboxes, which this is right when gaming online was starting to be a thing, but it was still a thing where you would, like, go to your friend's house on the weekend and bring your Xbox, and you guys would connect and, like, play Halo and all these things. And so it was the most... For high school boys, Boy, it was like the most amazing thing ever. We would like order pizza, and we would stay up all night, we would play Xbox in this room with all of us together. And so we decided, the, friend, the guys in my neighborhood, that we were going to build our own house. Now, did we ask permission? Did we have any idea where this was going to be built? I have no idea. But there was this little office park being built about half a mile outside of our neighborhood, and you could get to it from this railroad. And so uh, one night, a bunch of us slept over, and about midnight, we'd leave to go to this office park where all this wood is to gather the supplies for this house that we have no idea where it's going to be built. Also, did we know what type of wood and how much we needed to build this thing? Of course not. And so we spent four hours lugging plywood and two by fours back. It was miserable back and forth. And we put it in our friend's backyard where there was a forest and we thought it was going to be built. And of course, we never built it because we had no idea where and when and how it was going to happen. But, but I was somewhere I wasn't supposed to be, right? Jesus here is somewhere he isn't, you wouldn't expect him to be unless he actually is doing something that no one else can do. Now, of course, you may say this might just be a coincidence, right? The Old Testament is big. And so uh, there are bound to be times where Jesus does stuff that God does just because of how big it's supposed to be. And if that's what you think, well, let's continue and see if that's actually the case. And so again, now I want to read verse 48 again. We see here that Jesus walks on water, and there's more examples than that, but in the Old Testament, only God does. It also says this, again, very early in the morning, he came toward them, verse 48, walking on the sea. Why? Because he wanted to pass by them. So the question for us is also this. Did Jesus really mean to walk by his disciples without noticing them? Right? This is what the text seems to say in English, but that's kind of confusing. Or should we ask ourselves, what in the Old Testament passes by? Or when does God in the Old Testament pass by? Why does he do that? Well, in the Old Testament, God also uses this language of passing people by. And whenever he does, it's because he wants to reveal his glory to them. So again, a couple of quick examples. One is in Exodus 33. It'll also be on the screen. This is after, if you're familiar with the story, God redeems Israel out of Egypt. He saves them. He rescues them. Moses goes up, goes up on the mountain to get the commandments and to commune with God. And immediately the people uh, create this golden calf and start worshiping it. 
right, after all God has done. And so God is going to destroy them, but in his grace, he relents. And so God, Moses is meeting with God and asking for him to give him his grace. And here's what it says. The Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Or in Exodus 34, then he actually does it. Now, again, this is also coupled with the most quoted scripture in all of scripture. So Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is the most quoted passage of scripture within scripture itself. Here's what it says. The Lord passed in front of him, which is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And so again, this might come to mind that he, this is the most famous example of God passing somebody by with the most famous passage of scripture in scripture that's trying to say that this is who the character of God is. Of course, I'll give you one more example in 1 Kings chapter 19 with the prophet Elijah, it says this, then he said, go and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment... The Lord passed by. Or if you want to put it together, one last thing. We read Job 9, 8, and then Job 9, 11. If you put them together, here's what it says. Again, it says, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Verse 11, it says, If he passed by me, I wouldn't see him. If he went by, if he went by I wouldn't recognize him. Now, Job 9, again, is all about the separation of God and humanity and how about how he is so much greater than we are and how he can do what we cannot do. That's what Job 9 is about. And of course, as we're going to see, this is exactly what happens here. The disciples do not recognize him. So again, by using this terminology passes by with the disciples, Jesus, Mark is showing us, he's showing them that he is God and God is here. He's not some weird, mythical, unknowable force. He is made fully known and revealed in Jesus. Or put another way, by passing by, Jesus reveals himself, how only God reveals himself. He's doing something that only God can do. And if you have kids, you kind of like know this when kids try to imitate you, like they try to do what their parents do. Uh, like Roman, for example, whenever he eats chocolate or something like that, and it's like all over his mouth, he's like, look, I have a beard like Dada, right? He's trying to be like me, but of course he's not. Or yesterday, perfect timing, um, he saw me shaving. So I had like shaving cream on my neck and he walks by the bathroom. He says, Dada, I want to shave with you. And he got this little plastic shaving kit uh, for Christmas. And so he goes and gets it. And here's what it looked like. Oh, come on. You ha Listen, y'all, this is free advice, especially if you're not a kid person like me. Whenever someone shows you a picture of their kid, even if it ain't cute, you have to say aw, right? I'm sure all of you online were probably saying aw, so thank you, right? But here's a little shaving kit, right? He's trying to be like his dad. Now, here's the thing. He clearly isn't me. All he can do is imitate me. Jesus here is not pretending. He's not imitating. He is actually doing it. And that is what Mark is trying to show us. And so if we continue reading in verse 49, we're going to see that he does it another way as well. So Mark 6 verse 49, it says this, when they saw him, so when the disciples on the boat see Jesus walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. 
Now, again, remember, some of these disciples before following Jesus lived on the Sea of Galilee. They were fishermen. They have seen everything. This is something that has never happened to them before. So, of course, they are terrified. And, of course, normal human beings don't walk on water. So it's supposed to be some sort of ghost or some weird thing. But then here's what happens. And this is, again, this is really strange. It says this, the second half of verse 50. Immediately he, he being Jesus, uh, immediately he spoke with them and said, have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, again, this doesn't make any sense, right? So imagine you are in your backyard at night and it's dark and you're cleaning something up or you're taking the trash out and I come and scare you. Like I just yell out of nowhere. Not that I would do that, but it's just for sake of argument, right? If I, if I freak you out and I'm yelling at you, Stark, and you can't see me and you're asking like who is there and I told you it is I, that does not make any sense. Like who, I who, like who, that, I didn't tell you who I am unless, again, Jesus is specifically trying to communicate something to them. And so here's what we see happening here. That not only, as we've seen so far, does Jesus, like God, have the ability to walk on water, and not only does Jesus, like God, pass by to reveal his glory, but now we see that Jesus, like God, actually echoes the name for God himself with Moses at the burning bush. So if you're, again, if you're really quickly, if you're not familiar with the story, Exodus chapter 3, God calls Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt. And Moses is like, who am I supposed to tell them who sent me? Like, they're not going to believe me. He says, what is your name? And what, is, what does God say? He says, Yahweh, which means I am which is kind of confusing. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And Jesus, of course, uses this title for himself in the New Testament as well, which does not make sense unless you're familiar with the Old Testament. So again, it is I is weird. What's important to know that it is uh, Yahweh is ancient Hebrew, which again, essentially means I am. Uh, they are speaking Greek here. And so in the Greek New Testament, it is I in Greek is ego iemi, which is translated from Hebrew, I am. Right? Jesus, again, is trying to communicate something to him, or again, put another way, by saying it is I, Jesus calls himself what only God calls himself. He does what only God can do. He reveals himself in the same way that God reveals himself, and he calls himself the same thing that he does. Right? What Mark is showing us, again, is that nobody does these things like God. Right? It's kind of the opposite of the movie Catch Me If You Can, if you've seen that with Leonardo DiCaprio, and, like he's, and he like pretends to be like a pilot and a doctor, and he's like scamming all these people, and it's kind of, right? In that movie, of course, he isn't these things, but here is the opposite. Jesus actually is these things. What Mark is very clearly, clearly telling us is this, that Jesus is God. That is what he is saying. Now, again, he doesn't, in the Gospel of Mark, he doesn't really articulate it as much as Mark shows us. So if you're familiar, again, with the Gospel of John, it's a lot of the teachings of Jesus, a lot of the self-declarations of Jesus. In Mark, we aren't told as much as we are shown. And as we've seen, even in this passage and throughout the Gospel of Mark, we, we say here often around New Cities that Scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. That Jesus is unifying and showing that all these things that are promised find their fulfillment in me. And if it is true, then we have to decide what we are going to do with Jesus, right? He does not present himself as some wise sage. He does not present himself as someone who has merely good advice. He is presenting himself as God. Now, of course, you don't have to believe he is actually God, but if you don't believe Jesus is God, you cannot claim that he is some nice, good person with moral teaching. Because what he is, is the greatest deceiver in human history, if he is not who he says 
that he is. You and I have to decide what we're going to do with Jesus if Jesus is actually who he says he is or who he is presented to be in the gospel of Mark. And then it says this in verse 51. Here's what happens next. They're freaking out. He declares his name just like God declares his name in the Old Testament. Then it says this, verse 51. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. So the storm immediately died down and they were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves, the previous story we read. Instead, their hearts were hardened. So again here, Jesus calms the storm, which is the second time he's done it. Now, this storm is probably not as big as the first one, but it's still, uh, you know, quite amazing to see something like that happen. But it's not just that. More so, they're probably freaking out because he actually walked on water. Again, Mark does not give us all the details. Uh, this account is also in the uh, Gospel of Matthew. And so you may, you may recall when Jesus actually invites Peter to come out into the water with him, and he initially stands, but then he falls in because of his lack of faith, and he gets him out of the water. And so they're just freaking out. He comes out of nowhere. He's walking on water in the midst of a storm, and they don't know what to do. And yet, what does it say here? That Mark, again, this in the disciples, even though they've seen all these amazing things by Jesus, are still struggling to see Jesus for who he truly is. Like he's done a lot of great stuff and he's claimed to be the Messiah, but all these things that he's doing and all the fulfillments that he's making, they're, they're failing to see who he, he truly is. And in here in verse 52, uh, they are actually described just like the previous opponents of Jesus or some of the outsiders or some of the crowds, they're described as having hard hearts. Now here, it's not because they're against Jesus, but they're not fully understanding, which is, I don't know, maybe somewhat discouraging because they're as close as you can be to Jesus. And they're the ones that are seeing Jesus do everything in close proximity. And yet they're still confused. Yet this actually makes sense. If you think about the gospel of Mark, again, we're not given very many teachings of Jesus, but the first one we're giving is in Mark chapter four, the parable of the sower, which is essentially a lesson that says it's not about the seed. That's the problem. It's the ground. The seed is the gospel, the ground are people, and depending on the type of ground is whether or not they will actually be receptive to it. In fact, one biblical scholar commenting on this passage, it'll be on the screen, he puts it this way. He says, Mark again reminds us that faith is not an inevitable result of knowing about Jesus or, e or, of even, or even of being with Jesus. Faith is not something that happens automatically or involves inevitably. It is a personal decision or choice. In the Gospel of Mark, it is more often than not a decision that must be made in the face of struggle and trepidation. Discipleship is more endangered by lack of faith and hardness of heart than by external dangers. And this goes against maybe our cultural understanding because we often think we have to convince and we have to show people that this is true. And yet Mark seems to say the, the onus of responsibility about whether or not we have faith in Jesus is not external forces, it's us. Or put another way, that the biggest obstacle to faith in Jesus is us. Now, hear me, this does not mean other factors don't matter. It does not mean that there can't be questions about science or there can't be questions about things that have happened to you or experiences that you've seen or had or things that you read in the news and you have a lot of questions like, God, why would you allow things to happen the way they do? It's not that they don't matter. But again, this is my anecdotal experience in talking to a lot of people. Oftentimes, here's what I see that happens. We have these external factors that we have questions about. And so, we, and so we stop following Jesus or it keeps them away from Jesus when the reality is those factors have just stopped us from actually pursuing. Or put another way, when, again, sometimes I have conversations with people who have been following Jesus for a while and they're 
questioning, or maybe they're kind of going the other way. They'll, they'll, they'll present to me questions that they have, maybe intellectual questions. And then we'll talk about, well, have you actually done anything? Have you studied? Have you sought out questions? Again, not that I'll convince you that scripture is true, but have you done any things with these doubts? The answer is often no. Oftentimes, they are just a reason to allow them to go their own way, because let's be honest, we don't want anyone being Lord over us. We want to be Lord of our own life. We want to trust our very extremely limited experience, uh, limited capacity for understanding over what God might have for us. And so there might be very legitimate reasons that you're not quite sure about this Jesus thing. My encouragement would be, are you actually doing those things, doing anything about that, or are you allowing these things to actually keep you from facing the real issue, which is you and me? Like I think of, kind of makes me think of a couple of months ago, we had a leak in the lobby of the church and it was, uh, every, it would rain and then it like wouldn't rain, but yet it would still like leak, like just dropped. And so we're like, we got to figure this out because it's not raining and it's dropping. And so we had someone come and they're going to look at the roof and we're figuring, we're thinking if we can stop the roof leak, you know, the drops will stop. Well, they didn't stop. And so they took, we took uh, the, the ceiling tiles out and we look up and there is, I don't know what, other, other, what else to call it other than like this massive elastic drooping bubble in our ceiling. Like, I don't know what the material is, but there was just like, there was a ceiling and it was just like, boom. And there was like these like drops coming from it. There had like, like been a little bit of a hole. And so we get like one of those really big 30 gallon trash cans and we, we put it under the air and the guy pops it and it's just like a flood of water. And it fills up like 70% of the trash can, right? I mean, it's just like, where did all this come from, right? And so what had happened was as it would rain, it, they, it was slowly accumulating. So at one point there was so much rain, it couldn't actually stop. And so we could fix the ceiling, but it wasn't actually stopping the dripping because the, the, the elastic bubble is what I'm calling it. That was the actual problem. And if we're not careful, this is what can happen to us, that we don't actually deal with the real problem. It's us. We can blame external factors from keeping us away from the grace and mercy and the lordship of God in our life. And so here's what happens next, the last part of the story. Their hearts were hardened, right? They'd seen the, the feeding of the 5,000, but they don't fully understand. And then it says this. When they had crossed over... They came to the shore at Gesineret and anchored there. Now, just to point out, Gesineret was not their, original, uh, their original destination. It said they were going to go to Bethsaida in verse 45. Again, in typical Mark fashion, we're not told why. They went somewhere else. It could have been the storm. Who knows what it is, but they anchor at Gesineret. And then it says this. As they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized them. Again, they have had people around them for weeks. They cannot get away, and it happens again. Verse 55, they hurried throughout that region and began to carry the sick on mats to wherever they heard that he, being Jesus, was. Wherever he went, into villages, towns, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him to, that they might touch just the end of his robe. And then it says, and everyone who touched it was healed. And so what happens is Jesus gets out of the boat, again, exhausted, continues with his compassion, teaching and healing and loving the crowd. Everybody that comes to him is healed. In fact, really, these last three verses are really a summary of what has happened uh, through the first six chapters of Mark. In Mark chapter 7, things start to change a little bit. Uh, but for really, this is like, this is, if anything, it's a recap. I mean, yes, this actually happened after the, uh, the walking on water, but this is what he's done if you've been with us. He's been healing and helping and giving people grace. I mean, this is indiscriminate grace is what this is. And as we've seen so far, and as we'll continue to see, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, none of these things stop Jesus from helping those around him. Or what we see happening here, put another way, that Jesus never tires of offering 
his grace. Again, everywhere he goes, followers of of Yahweh or not, the crowd of the 5,000 who needed to be taught and needed to be cared for, or even his disciples in the middle of the sea. He sees people in need, he has compassion, and he helps, right? He came to offer us something unlike anything else. And the offer is whether or not you will follow and trust in what I have provided for you, right? The good news of the gospel is not that we try really hard and then combine with us trying really hard. It's that God said, you've done enough. I will redeem you. I will let you into my family. No, the problem is we are just like the disciples struggling through life. That Jesus looks out to us and says, this is why I have come to live the life you could not have lived, to die the death that you should have died, to resurrect, to defeat sin and darkness on your behalf so that anyone in the midst of our doubts and our pains and our struggles and our falling short can receive grace and mercy that only he provides. The good news of the gospel is that we get to experience him and his kingdom. And so again, this is why things like 21 days of prayer and fasting, while they can be difficult, they are so encouraging to remind us that we need him. Or groups, again, they're starting this week. This is one of God's graces to us, community, to follow him together. If you're not in a group, this is one of the ways you can experience encouragement and reminder that God loves you and he cares for you. Again, this is the opposite of what I was talking about in the beginning. Again, not that it's wrong to want to get the most out of your money and the most out of your time when you travel somewhere, but I'm going all these places to get as most out of it that I can for me. What we see consistently through the gospel of Mark that Jesus comes to give the most that he can away. To the hurting, to those that need healing, to those that need forgiveness, to those that need love, to those that need grace, he always offers it. Not for what he can get, because honestly, we cannot give anything to God that he cannot get on his own, but for what he can give. And so no matter you, what you came in here with today, no matter what you might have experienced if you're watching with us online, you need to be reminded that Jesus came to offer his grace, and he does not get tired of it. He's not like us. He does not get tired of it. He wants to invite you in. 